1: Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Dr. Gabia Tolikita is a neuroscientist, behavioral coach, lecturer, and author who joins me on this episode of the podcast to talk about how to create lasting change, among many other things. Now, we've talked about habits at length on this podcast, good ones, bad ones, feel-good ones, and we can all have great intentions when it comes to creating habits that we hope will lead to a positive change, but intention isn't always followed by action, and that's what can become frustrating. In fact, it's that inability to act on the intention that can sometimes become a stick that we use to beat ourselves with. We've all been there. We've written down a list. We've written our intentions down, the habits that we want to create on nice paper. Maybe we've done it in the computer and we've used a nice font. And yet when it comes to actually acting on it, it just doesn't happen. Well, in this episode, Gabia shares that this uh, inability to act on our intentions is pretty understandable, especially if you know how the brain works and which parts of the brain are causing you to not do something, even if there's a part of you that really, really wants to. During our conversation, Gabby and I talk about habit formation, why bad habits can actually serve a useful purpose, why taking a slow run-up to change is often the way to really make it stick, understanding the role the amygdala plays in our decision-making and how perception bias affects how we see and interact with the world, which can obviously affect our intentions and our actions. Gabia also explores what it means to have a growth mindset, why we procrastinate and why wanting to change but feeling unable unable to is something you can work around with a few clever exercises. I find Gabia's insights really fascinating and um, I asked her to come on the show after I read her book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's called Why the F Can't I Change? Because with her expertise and insights as a neuroscientist and behavioral coach, it really feels as though what she's able to do is lead you on a journey of self-discovery that takes a very trusted path based in scientific evidence and research. Plus, she makes it also very accessible, as you will hear in our conversation. If you think a book by a neuroscientist or having habit formation explained to you by a neuroscientist might might get complicated. She's been she's really talented at being able to make it incredibly accessible. And honestly, I had so many light bulb moments, not only reading her book but talking to her that I really am delighted to share her expertise and insight with you on this show. So the links to Gabia, her book, everything that uh, we've talked about in the podcast will obviously be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But here she is making her debut on the podcast. I hope she will return. It's Dr. Gabia Tolikita on The Emma Gunn Show. Hello, Gabia Tolikita. How are you? Oh, hi there. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you on the podcast because you are a neuroscientist, a behavioral coach, and a lecturer, and now an author. And your book, the new book that you have, Why the F Can't I Change, is something that I think really resonates with a lot of the conversations and topics that we've discussed on this podcast previously, which is this idea that we want to change, but maybe we don't know how, maybe we think we are unable, or maybe we are trying our very best and then it becomes aware, we become aware of the fact that we're actually getting in our own way. And so Mm -hmm. just before we begin, I just wondered this, how did you come to write why the f card I change? And is it because of seeing this kind of topic
2: talked about over and over again? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I used to give a, a lot of public talks in London. I used to give two, two to three public talks uh, in London a week. I attended between 100 and 300 people. And every single time after, after the seminar, uh, somebody would come to me or a number of people and say like, well okay, I understand all this, you know, it's it's brilliant to to, to, to aspire and try to create those things, but what's wrong with me? Why can't I change? What's fundamentally basically wrong with me? Mm. And I heard that over and over again with my coaching clients as well. They would come and say, okay, well, I have all these possibilities and am I sabotaging myself? What's what's going on with me? Um, And that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that we should be able to change easily. How come we can look at other people they can? Now, the reality is change is hard. In order to create change in the brain, loads of things need to happen. So therefore, um, in this book, I combine neuroscience approach with the coaching tools um, to to just show, show the actually what needs to happen in your brain for the change to be created in the first place, but also how to make the change last. Because sometimes to create a quick change it's easy. Like if if you know if you say Gabby, can you quit sugar completely for a day? No problem. But if you tell me quit sugar for a year, that would be much harder. So so how to make a lasting change requires even more things to happen in the brain. So so therefore in the book I share I share both neuroscience and very practical tools and coaching techniques as well to accompany how to actually practically then make things happen. When I was reading the book, I had a lot of light bulb moments. I definitely saw
1: things in in a new perspective and looked at situations that I've been in previously where perhaps I have wanted to change or didn't get the result I wanted. And then in reading the book, very much through your insights, like you say, using neuroscience and coaching, was able to take those one or two steps further back, gain perspective and and think, oh, that's why it went wrong. And so, and
2: I think that's a very important step to really understand what were the reasons of us, what we call failing our New Year's resolutions or change. That's not really a failure. That's actually normal pattern of the brain. If we try to change in a way that doesn't work for the brain, brain will be, bring the old habits back. And understanding, you know, all the valid reasons why we did actually not succeed to create a change is a very important part of gaining awareness of what things we need to do differently next.
1: So, and uh, what I really enjoyed about it is the breadth. Like you say, we're going from even things like New Year's resolutions all the way to how to manage a team better in the workplace. All of these things apply a very sort of, similar science. And it's a little bit like taking taking a few more steps back and taking more of a run up to it and really looking, looking at things. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about habit formation, because I guess we are talking in January. A lot of people will have made new year's resolutions or will have wanted 2021 to look or feel a certain way. And they might be at the stage we're, we're chatting a couple of weeks in where their resolve is maybe breaking or waning. How
2: does one go about forming a habit? Well, we form habits automatically. To be honest, like we, we, we can't help but form habits. That's just the brain's way of saving energy. Anything where we kind of get enough benefits from, we naturally want to repeat it. And if we repeat it frequently enough, it becomes automatic. And in that way, we don't need to focus on it. It saves our mental space, but also it saves energy. So things like if, if like when I take my daughter to her preschool, I just go exactly the same way because I know exactly how long it would take me. Now, there is no reason for me to go exact same road. I could alternate. I could take different roads as it's, it's much of muchness, different streets. But I just form the habit because I can't predict how long it would take me. And it just saves me thinking about it. Right. Because mm-hmm. in the mornings, would you agree, there is a lot of things to think about sometimes yeah. if you need to juggle different things. So that habit. I, I didn't even realize that I formed until they started roadworks on that street. And I'm suddenly, oh, what do I do? <laughs> and then I realized actually it became an automatic habit. And, and so that, 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 that's what we kind of naturally do now. We become aware of the habits when we try to change them. And if we try to change a habit, we firstly need to realize, what am I getting out of this habit? Every habit meets certain needs, even the habits we call bad habits. Like even, you know, if you, if you come back home and get into the argument with your boyfriend or husband or a girlfriend, probably you're getting something out of it. Right? Uh, and, and, and sometimes we, we get into arguments because we don't feel significant enough. We don't feel noticed enough. Sometimes we are bored and we say something to stir the atmosphere. Sometimes we lack safety and we need more reassurance. And therefore we confront to get more reassurance, so even the habits we don't like, um, we get something out of it. Uh, even the things like sugar, sugar eating, sugary snacks, pastries, and any other delicious things, we get not only physical needs, such as you know feeling a little like a boost of sugar rush in the body and, and a little bit revitalized for a short period of time. But also we might feel safety when we feel anxious, having sugary snacks or in general eating calms our stress response down. So there is a lot of things we can meet. So firstly, if we want to change a habit, we need to realize what am I getting out of it? And what could be better ways to meet the same need? Because we can't just get rid of the habit. Just like stop doing it and that's it. It doesn't work that way. It becomes it creates a vacuum in the system. And therefore, we are much more likely to go back to the old habit. However, if we replace it with another habit, which means the same need, and if we repeat it often enough for long enough, it becomes a new automatic habit. So um, something, for example, that maybe a lot of
1: people are trying to do at the moment is so they're trying to work out more in 2021 mm-hmm. so if you were to sit down on December 31st and think right I'm going to work out five days a week half an hour a day and you sort of you, you white knuckle it you can have a certain amount of success mm-hmm. but what I learned from what you've just said and what I learned from the book is that unless you understand why you want to work out unless you've analyzed and really thought about what you're going to get out of it then yeah, really so- it's going to be
2: hard yeah, well, with that, that specific example, like I see a couple issues. So my first question is, how many times do you work out a week now, right? And if this person was to say zero times a week, I'd say, okay, well, you're aiming too high. It's, 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 it Brain hates such a ch- sudden change. And let me just tell you uh, about one brain region called amygdala. Amygdala is really old region, in the, like tiny in the middle of the brain, but it's the most annoying brain region of all. Amygdala absolutely hates change. Amygdala's job is to keep you safe. Um, if you've ever been in the relationship, which wasn't good for you, but after breakup, you just kept longing to go back, that's your amygdala was trying to drag you back. Because no matter how much pain you experience, amygdala wants familiarity above all. And your rational centers might say, that's not good for me, right? That relationship. But amygdala says, I don't care. I just want the same situation back. Now, amygdala does the same with habits. Your, your rational centers might understand, I should work out more, but amygdala says, no, that's not what you're used to. You're used to sitting on the sofa. <laughs> I want to sit on the sofa. So we want to start in amygdala-friendly way, because whenever there is an argument between rational centers and amygdala, eventually amygdala wins. Oh. I- Because amygdala, amygdala has very annoying power. It can suppress the rational thinking. I can give you an example. Have you ever been really, really annoyed at somebody or really jealous or really scared? And have you ever said something you afterwards regretted? Yes. Or said or done something, right? And that's because amygdala for that period of time suppressed prefrontal cortex, which is the smartest area of your brain. And that's what amygdala does when there is too much Novelty and too much change. So, firstly, if we can do in uh, change in amygdala friendly way, so just introducing small step at the time instead of five times a week. Let's start with once a week for fifteen minutes. If you never exercised regularly before, that's perfect goal. I mean, if you if you exercised four times a week before and just took two weeks off, just kind of you know either you were not feeling well or or you uh had an injury and you couldn't exercise to be fair then you know you could go back to four times a week um, because the break is not too long but if you have not been living really a physically active lifestyle uh, then you need to start with with much much less but also uh, so first first advice is, is actually starting with just about 10 percent more to what you're currently used to now, secondly, what associations you put with the exercise will either make it more likely or less likely for you to do it. If exercise associates with pain uh, for you, or, and kind of, if you, if something you don't enjoy, you're much less likely to do it. But if you really enjoy exercise or see lots of, lots of benefits of doing it and truly feel it, then you're much more likely to do it. But if, if you're not used to exercise and say, oh, I just, I'd rather, you know, just, just stay here warm and, and, and not do much, write down all the benefits you could think of, of doing exercise, because that would trigger your reward centers of the brain and induce some pleasure associated with exercise. The same applies with, you know, when we try to give up sugary snacks. If we think, okay, giving up sugar, sugary snacks associates with pain, you know, loss of pleasure, uh, write down as many benefits as you can of giving that up. So you want to induce the, the pleasure associated with not eating the sugary snacks. So in other words, we need to trigger reward system in order to want to do it, to increase the motivation and do it in small steps and do it regularly enough till it becomes a habit so this
1: idea of whether it's fitness or whether it's quitting sugary snacks or whether it's anything this idea of from tomorrow i will x is the wrong approach it's that it should be a long run up so if you have a new year's resolution for example you should be thinking maybe by march i'm going to be where i i'm going to be where i want the resolution to look like now but i'm going to take 3 months to get there because that's the way i'm going to make it
2: stick yeah L- having long term vision ultimately uh, produces much better results and quick fixes don't quite work neither for the mind nor the body nor business nor any area of life right kind of saying okay I want to get there but in order to get there I need to go through a number of steps and I'll start with a small one and then once that becomes a success, I'll increase it. Once that becomes a stable habit, I'll increase it. And that has provides much, much better success in creating lasting change. I also thought what was quite interesting is you talked about uh, the fact that bad
1: habits can actually be quite useful.
2: Yeah, we always get something useful out of any habit. And the, it, 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 so therefore it requires understanding of the situation. Now imagine... Imagine if you're going through really, really tough time for one or another reason. Maybe your relationship is, is, is not where you want to be. Uh, maybe you recently experienced uh, some challenges at work, or maybe you're experiencing some health issues that, that are, you know, frightening you. Um, indulging in the habits, which we call bad habits, is actually a necessary step for you to kind of not to get insane, right? It's a necessary step to kind of allow your body and brain to process the information slowly. Mm. So when we experience like big sudden um, emotional trauma, the the brain can't process everything all at once. So kind of having a little bit of escapism such as watching Netflix or indulging on, on, on certain foods or certain drinks can help you to kind of escape the pain for a bit And then ultimately, you know, we get back to the pain and process it for a bit, but we need breaks from it as well. Uh, So it's in particular in those tricky periods. And I described in my book when when I was doing my PhD, and there were a lot of things happening in my life, which which weren't great, you know, they were really painful. And um, I was really getting overwhelmed. And therefore, certain habits helped me to kind of for the short period of time, not to get too overwhelmed and not to really get insane at ultimately. Now, once that stage passed, we can actually uh, start incorporating healthy habits to deal with it. But being kind of you know, considered and caring towards ourselves and allowing us to kind of lapse in those periods is is very important habit to have as well.
1: I'm curious then what you think about things like labels, like people who say, oh, I'm lazy, and that's their sort of, you know, that's their reflex if they talk about exercise or if somebody says, I'm just not that tidy or I'm just disorganized. Are those things actually fixed or can they? Is labeling unhelpful yeah. or helpful?
2: Um, depends. Um, so we actually often judge ourselves based on other people's values. In the areas we truly care about, we're never lazy. In, I'm never lazy with my lecturing and with my with book writing. I never procrastinated once. It, it just didn't happen. Now, there are things I procrastinate over and feel lazy, such as maybe, I don't know, cleaning the bathroom or uh, let me think, reading newspapers. Uh, that's not something that's high on my value. Therefore, those things I don't find time for. However, every single one of us has very unique value hierarchy. And the things that are at the top of our value hierarchy, we always find time for. We always uh, find, find energy, we find money for it. And we also are organized and we think about it all the time. It's on our mind, we talk to other people about it. And we are natural leaders in that area. While in other areas, we, we are not right in the areas which are at the bottom of the valley hierarchy, we could be completely opposite. So if for somebody like really beautiful looking room and just beauty around them is really important. They will always make sure that the house is tidy, that everything is up to scratch, that the clothes are nicely ironed and, you know, they have a nice collection of shoes and other items. But for somebody who, whom that that is not important, they might label themselves as oh, I'm just uh, sloppy and lazy and I can't get those things. But they will be very organized in other areas. So I, if you have a label, I, I would suggest to, for you to challenge yourself and ask which areas I'm not lazy in, which areas I actually have loads of energy, which areas I'm creative at. And that would help to explain extend yourself and extend the label, but allowing yourself to be lazy in the areas which are not important to you, I think it's important as well.
1: And that's what's really helpful. It's this idea of it's possible to change,
2: mm. but you might not necessarily need to, don't feel the pressure to change. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. And I talk in my book a lot about how to dissolve other people's values from your own value hierarchy, because it, we, we can't help but be influenced by other people, especially people who are important to us or people whom we look up to. And sometimes we accumulate other people's priorities in our value list. And when we do that, we accumulate a lot of shoulds. and say, I should be doing that instead of what I really am doing. Asking yourself, oh, whose voice is that? Where did I get that from? Because if it was truly important to you, you would be doing it. There would be no should. Um, and if, if, if you detect that it's somebody else's voice, ask yourself, is, is there, do you really want to do it? Is that important to you? And if the answer is no, then you know, uh, there, the, the, there is ways to resolve it. But if the answer is actually I would benefit from doing it, there is ways to increase that into your value hierarchy. And, and I share in the book some practical tools on how to do it. Because I think
1: you and I have a very similar feeling about the word should. And Mm. I'm sure regular listeners will laugh when we've talked about this, because I've said, if it's a should, maybe interrogate why it's a should. But it also brings me back to when I had Gretchen Rubin on the podcast and she talked about the four tendencies and how you respond to internal or external expectations. And should is very much a, who are you trying to impress?
2: Mm. And I wondered
1: about this idea of, coming back to a point where you're just trying to impress yourself rather than impress someone else and how, how you would advise people maybe
2: get to that space. I think just getting awareness of what things are truly important to you and really observing where you're playing that out ultimately uh, can help you to kind of own it more and feel more authentic. Because if we we often take things that we are good at and we truly care about for granted. We say, yeah, well, okay, I'm good at, at, let's say, uh, design and making things really beautiful, but I'm not very good academically, right? So you're suddenly like invalidating what you actually truly care about and trying to become who you're not. So actually really uh, going through the value hierarchy exercise and understanding what your top priorities are and really looking how you're playing that and really honoring it would naturally help to dissolve those things which are not you, but if we're done, if we're not even aware of those things we are good at, we naturally want to be good at things. We want to feel I have an identity. I have something that's me, you know? And and if we don't, if we we if we're not looking at those things and if we don't find an evidence, we can't feel good about ourselves. But getting that awareness and getting the like seeing, actually, you know what? It's not that like a lot of people are not good at those things. Um and not taking that for granted would help to honor it and to center it and maybe taking it next step further, creating a 10, 20 years vision. How do you want that area to look like those top values? How do you want to look like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years would help you to actually create compelling future. And that's another stage for for kind of creating long-term identity and you know kind of honoring it. One of the things, obviously you are
1: a neuroscientist and one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is uh, helping the reader, almost like taking them on a tour of the brain. And we've already talked about the amygdala and uh, to be a little bit self-indulgent, but just to give you a bit of backstory, I made a massive significant change in my own life um, a year ago when I read a book about binge- about basically about eating disorders and understood the fact that the animal brain is the one that controls the arms that goes to the cupboard and puts the food in the mouth. And the rational brain actually has the power to say, I'm not going to get up. And for me, that led to a really massive change in my own life. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about these, I know we've touched on the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, but talk about the, the different parts of the brain and how actually they can be switched on and switched off if you just kind of Understand what they what they are and what their functions are.
2: Well, actually, we can't really switch them on and off. but oh. <laughs> well, understanding why they why they feel as they feel, why they think as they think, uh, can help us to adjust our behavior. Right. So a lot of times we we develop binge eating or other habits, compulsive habits, is because of emotional input. Emotions arise in the mammal brain centers. And whenever we feel an urge to do things, if we think that's what we need to do, then of course it would change. If, if we, it would affect our behavior. But if I understand, no, this is just my mammal brain trying to meet safety, trying to meet familiarity, trying to run away from other emotions I don't like, but I don't need to act on it. It, it doesn't mean that my body needs it. it just, it's just basically mammal brain is trying to, you know, kind of escape and get to the okay place. Uh, but ultimately is not solving anything, then it kind of can actually having that understanding with your rational brain can help us to not give into that. And also I share in the book uh, so-called amygdala soothing techniques and amygdala educating techniques. So we can use our prefrontal cortex to educate mammal brain and to say, I know you're feeling this way, but the reality is there is nothing to fear of. These things basically explain because mammal brain doesn't understand the complex world. Especially when we're trying to change a lot of things, mammal brain absolutely freaks out. Now, using the rational brain to understand uh, what's going on and to explain that to mammal brain in really simple terms, like if you were to explain to the toddler, you know, can help the mammal brain to calm down and to feel okay about situation. And when the mammal brain is calm, we can act from our rational centers. But we we can't fight the mammal brain. We can only soothe it. It's a bit like, imagine like mammal brain is like a, a small child. And if you just ignore the child, it would just scream just louder. And we start throwing things on the floor and doing more things that you would notice it. But if you soothe the child and say, what would you like? Would you like some nice toys? Would you like to watch a cartoon? Would you like a little snack? And once the child is happy, you can get on with other things. And that's what we're trying to do when we try to change the behavior, and especially if we try to um, get rid of or change the habits, which are very much driven by those emotional centers. It's um, it's really
1: interesting because immediately when I started reading that section of the book, and even when you were talking about it there, I'm think it makes me think of emergency responders. It makes me think of those people who have to use speed and maybe sometimes brute force to get into a situation that's quite dire, but then Mm. they have to switch on their rational brain in order Mm. to actually assess. And you use that great example, the one about the firefighter who just got a sense that something was wrong, took his team out of the house and he was absolutely right. He couldn't explain Mm. what was wrong, but instinctively all that practice, he was able to engage his rational brain and say, something's not right. Let's get out. And he saved his team. Um, Mm. So I'm, I'm curious about, this idea of soothing soothing the amygdala and whether it's a process that with practice you
2: can speed up so that you become less reactive? Yeah, well, amygdala over the years becomes more and more traumatized. So we we accumulate more and more trauma. Amygdala remembers every single time you were criticized, you were hurt by somebody, you were uh, betrayed by somebody. So in other words, amygdala from the moment we are born is accumulating trauma. Now, depending what habits we engage in and what relationships we build, most importantly, amygdala can either resolve that trauma and release it, or it can just accumulate even more. Um, So a lot of us end up being more and more reactive as we get older. Now, in order to soothe amygdala, there is multiple things we can do. Like some of them are physical, like, you know, meditation, breathing exercises, taking a hot bath. But most of it is relational, developing healthy relationships, having really nice, loyal friendships, having people we can just call any, any time of the day, having resonant leadership at work and things like that. And the more we engage in them, the calmer amygdala is. The karma amygdala is the less work we need to do to soothe it. So in other words, like if you imagine a amygdala like a glass, right? If, we, if it's full of water, it gets triggered all the time. But if, it's, if we kind of do things that can help to empty the water from that glass, then you know, small things wouldn't really trigger it. Only big situations might trigger it. So kind of doing a amygdala soothing activities on the daily basis would kind of help to soothe it much quicker and less and less things would trigger it ultimately but if we are constantly escaping from our emotions and getting in more and more destructive situations for us the opposite unfortunately would happen so it's kind of being selective uh, you know what's good for me what's not and actually emotions is the language your brain tells you whether the situation is good for you or not because if you if you are like at work and suddenly you just feel like get that gut feeling you know something is not right or if you're meeting up with somebody but you kind of Rationally seems okay to meet up with that person, but when you meet up and it just doesn't feel right, it's your mammal brain saying, that's not good for you. And the, the gut feeling ultimately originates in the very primitive centers of the brain, which um, accumulate all the subtle cues, such as smell, actions, you know, uh, whether, whether facial expressions and words are consistent with one another. And it ultimately computes what the intentions of the person or situation might be and compares to who you are. So those subtle emotions, and you know, when we're talking in the chapter on decision-making about system one a really quick mammal brain driven decision-making system, it just kind of assesses, is that good for you or not? And ultimately, if, if we want to be happy in our relationships, careers and lifestyle We need to pay attention to that.
1: So if someone is the sort of person who goes into a social situation and maybe they would be uh, the kind of person who would perhaps describe themselves as anxious and potentially social situations make them feel more anxious. Would that person have a more triggered or more sensitive amygdala than somebody who goes in and just is able to have a drink and talk to anyone and not notice notice anyone else's facial expression or not think that anyone has slighted them or that maybe the party's not for them is that is that does anxiety in those situations literally come down to the amygdala yeah absolutely so
2: we all have individual amygdala triggers so some people get get, uh, sensitized in social situations other people about public speaking other people about their looks you name it so there is every one of us has amygdala triggers and if your amygdala is triggered in social situations anxiety is just the way your amygdala is telling you i'm scared basically i don't know what's going to happen although rationally you might think there is nothing to worry about right and you might even feel what's wrong with me why can't i just socialize as other people but your your that's the trigger for your amygdala so it means that actually your amygdala is overwhelmed so a lot of times, if you're feeling really anxious about certain situations, you might need to tweak and find a little bit better way. So for example, going to social situations with your best friend or going to situations where you actually know people or at least know some people uh, could help you to kind of train your amygdala that they are safe. But if you're kind of just completely ignoring, them, I'm just going to go to the party where I don't know even a single person, they might not even be people you like, is going to traumatize amygdala even more. So choosing like a sa- safe way to expand your boundaries and retrain your amygdala is usually better approach than just completely just kind of jumping, you know, head first. But it, again, it comes back to this idea of um, if you are somebody who think
1: who says that they're anxious, that's actually something you can pull back from. by soothing the amygdala with all those
2: behaviors that you've also said? You can can soothe it to some extent, but if you're in the situation where your amygdala is constantly triggered, um, it's very, very hard to keep amygdala calm. When I was thinking about the amygdala, I was thinking how
1: modern life, is modern life constantly stimulating it and traumatizing it? And, And is that why perhaps we're seeing a lot more, I mean, this is more of a global uh, community Mm -hmm. society thing, but is that maybe why we're seeing more knee-jerk reactions to things or more extreme reactions
2: to things? Yes, there is a lot of things about modern life that are not that good for amygdala. Uncertainty, like a lot of people are on zero-hour contracts these days. That's horrible for amygdala. Amygdala needs to know. Amygdala needs to feel safe. Uh, financial insecurity is not good for amygdala. Lack of stable relationships is not good for amygdala. And in general, like, you know, if you look back in the day, you know, if you take when, when people actually lived in the same communities where they were born and grew up, that's actually what amygdala loves. Uh, you know, having all the loved ones together, uh, knowing exactly what, what we're going to do every single day, having lots and lots of really caring, relationships and even if we argue even if we don't get along having those predictable relationships knowing that those people are going to still stay there no matter what and of course nowadays also the the dating life and relationships are also not quite good for because there is there might be some sort of sense of uh, transience that okay you know i'm in a relationship for as long as it works if it doesn't work I'll end it and start another one. That's not good for amygdala either. So, um, so it's a tricky one. Uh, also, uh, pace—really quick pace—creates stress response, which amygdala freaks out. Change, constant change, constant like, um, uh, you know, uh, rate of, of of things changing, trigger amygdala. B- loneliness, uh, and you know, as now we're going through, not being able to see people and hang out with people. Physically, because just physical contact with people, having them in our presence, soothe amygdala. Um, having, having any kind of threats such as you know, global pandemic or any other, uh, any other kind of things which, which can cause us harm, or uh, 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 they also sensitize the amygdala. So in fact, these days we're going through quite a lot (laughs) that that actually oversensitize the amygdala. And therefore doing those amygdala soothing activities on the daily basis is even more important than ever.
1: I think I I, I totally agree. And it definitely came through in the book. And I think what I really took from the, the section on the amygdala and this particular thing about reacting is how important it is to take a beat. And you know Mm -hmm. how, um, I've definitely been this person, I have lots of friends who would say the same, that they thrive on stress. The busier I am, the better I perform. I like a bit of stress. I used to do live TV. I wouldn't eat beforehand. I'd probably pound about four coffees. Um, But that would would get me my, you know, that would make me great on air or so I thought. Mm -hmm. What about that? What about people who think, I love stress. My amygdala seems to work really well for me. Is that actually fundamentally true in any yeah. way?
2: Well, there is two types of stress, right? There is stress and de-stress, uh, and one of it could be stimulating while the other is debilitating. So there is some truth in it because when we are in immediate stress or acute stress, what happens in our body, energy is released from the liver Uh, The glycogen storage releases glucose, so suddenly have lots of energy, and also uh, other systems such as immune system is blocked, digestion is blocked, so all the energy goes in our physicality and in our sort of it creates a sharp focus, tunnel vision, so other things don't matter. So in some sense, it could be good, like if you are, uh, you know race car driver. You need that kind of being on the edge and you know kind of that tunnel vision, not thinking about anything else. However, if we experience that regularly, that causes problems. That can cause just constantly blocking immune system, constantly blocking digestive system, doesn't give a chance for your body to replenish. It can lead to chronic illness, it can lead to issues with the digestive tract, it can lead to also reduced brain plasticity. Because when we actually are under on the, on the stress response, uh, brain plasticity is blocked as well because it's a luxury rather than necessity. So all that kind of being you know, in that zone is actually trick, basically it's like primitively, it's like, okay, there is a bear, you need to either hunt it or run away. But if you're constantly running away from a bear or hunting it, your body and brain doesn't get chance to replenish and you can't really have empowering relationships you can have well-functioning, creative thinking. You can't think out of the box. We can only do those things uh, while well practice tasks, while in that in that period of time. And we can't even be aware of what other people are going through. So, for the tasks where we kind of is is just our individual performance, um, as long as we get enough period after that, when we give our bodies and brain chance to recover, it's fine. But if we're constantly on that, and in fact that could be quite addictive state, it can cause problems long term.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she says, nodding sagely. <laughs> right. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, let's talk about the growth mindset because I think when I started this podcast, that was really very much one of my intentions. Was I want to learn from people. I mean, look, I'm now sitting talking to you. You've done all the degrees, you've done all the work to be a neuroscientist, and I get to pick your brain. And I like to think that helps me uh, grow my own brain and my own mind in really positive ways. So, but as you say, we the brain is kind of uh, programmed to keep everything familiar. So does that mean that actually you have to sort of change your change your viewpoint in order to have a growth mindset rather
2: than just... Yeah, so brain, brain, is, brain is kind of ambiguous thing. So primitive centers of the brain want to be, keep you stuck in the old habits because that, that gives them sense of safety. Because the, the, the more primitive mammal brain areas, they, they want you to keep you alive. They want to keep you safe. Now, other areas on the outside of your brain, neocortex or the human brain, or in particular the area underneath your forehead called prefrontal cortex, want you to grow, they want you to be your best self. That's where all your aspirations are. That's where all the kind of amazing creative ideas come from. And that's that's how we can create really like mutually empowering relationships. And these areas can help us to change and to have growth mindset. Now, uh, pl- brain plasticity is a plastic process. So based on what we do, we either increase or decrease our chances to change. So when we are in the growth mindset, uh, which namely it means that we kind of accept ourselves as a work in progress, accept that, you know what? There is loads of things I'm good at, but there is loads of things I'm still not good at yet, but I can learn. And in order to, to develop those things, I need to practice. I need to put the work in. I need to take the feedback from people and not to shy away from criticism. And I need to think, how can I become better in doing those things? That's a growth mindset. When we in that mindset, our brain becomes more plastic and we do more tasks to become better at those things. Now in fixed mindsets, we say, okay, you are either good at things or not. In other words, we think that things such as intelligence, skills, even beauty are inherited. So you are either beautiful or not, right? And we don't. Then what we do if we think, okay, I'm I'm just not beautiful. Let's imagine if, if that was somebody's idea, then we don't put the work in to look better, right? All of us can actually do some things, exercise more, uh, up, you know, kind of learn about nicer makeup for ourselves, dress nicer to look better. So so if 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 but if ultimately I had the belief I'm just not good looking, I might not put the work in to become better looking. And if somebody thinks I'm just not intelligent, they might not put their work in, in reading, learning, gaining new skills to become better. Therefore, the brain will keep stuck at existing habits and won't be actually improving. So whatever you believe it's self-fulfilling prophecy, Whether you believe you can change or whether you believe you can't change, it kind of escalates that direction based on the actions we do
1: that's really making me think about being at school and being put into a a class depending on how bright you were like there was the top set the 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 clever set and I was never in the clever set listeners I was always in I just scraped into the third out of the fourth and so I was kind of labeled as one of the sort of slightly dim ones
2: (laughs) well funnily enough have you heard about those experiments of where the uh, students took the IQ tests but experimenters mixed them up. So they given the teachers a list of actually the pupils who had the lowest IQ scores, saying that they had the highest ones. And do you know what happened later on?
1: They treated them differently.
2: (laughs) Teachers put more effort onto those students. And if those students couldn't get something, they thought that there was something wrong with their own explanation. Spend more time with those pupils, And those pupils effectively could learn. So when they took objective tests, not by the teachers, but actually objective assessments, such as, you know, GCSE or A level, those pupils actually scored much, much better than they did in any tests before because they got more tuition. This is what I thought was really fascinating, actually, about perception bias, because
1: obviously we've spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time talking about how we can change ourselves and the ways that we can really look at how our brain functions and how we can make the changes that maybe we want and see ourselves differently in order to facilitate those changes. What I really appreciated about the perception biases, as you say, you walk out into the world, and if you go out one day and you say, right, I'm going to look for everybody who looks happy, mm. you will find them. But if you go out the next day and think, I'm gonna look for everybody who looks like they might be angry, you will also find those people. And it doesn't take a neuroscientist to say who, which is the better
2: experience. Yeah, and both are true. And our amygdala will always notice negativity around it. That's amygdala's job. We don't need to put extra effort in that. But if we put more effort in noticing positivity around us, we'll have more balanced view because amygdala will provide us with negativity. Our prefrontal cortex will provide us with what things are good out there. And we'll have, you know, it's 50-50. There is both there. So your brain will have awareness. But we have to be careful not to self-delude. We have to be careful not to think, oh, everybody is great. Everybody's amazing. That's not true, (laughs) right? (laughs) So everybody has amazing qualities and really annoying qualities, depending on the context, depending on the situation. So kind of being aware of both sides of the coin, I think it's very important. And I also want to move on,
1: actually, to because this was the chapter that I think my jaw dropped properly open to the floor, because this was the chapter where I realized I had been getting in my own way, despite moving forward with the best of intentions. And listeners, I wonder if you might agree with this too. This is this idea of dissonant and resonant leadership. And I have always thought, let's just focus on the task because that's gonna be the quickest route. To me, it's like, if I'm at A and the end result is B, the quickest way to it is not to worry about anything else on the sidelines and just head straight for that. But as you very beautifully describe in the book, actually, you're not taking into account other people's feelings, you're not taking into account other people's perspectives, and that can actually slow down that process from A to B. So would you mind just explaining the differences between dissonant and resonant leadership?
2: Yeah, so it highly depends on the task. Uh, So in resonant leadership, um, we honour other people, we get to know other people and we kind of encourage and empower other people to be their best selves. In dissonant leadership, we use people as tools, basically. It's the kind of, you know, plain way to put it. We look, okay, uh, can you do this for me? And, but we don't care whether that person wants to do that or not, whether that person is, you know interested or motivated to do that maybe they would rather do the task they're not as good at but they really want to practice and become better at but we kind of are in ignorance of other people's needs desires and feelings about things and therefore it's a kind of dissonant leadership is a sort of a little bit short-sighted approach in achieving results well, in short term, it can re- achieve results better and, and quicker, right? Sometimes better, not always better. But in long term, it can bite us in the ass. Because especially if you have a team you're managing, if people are not happy in your team, they're going to leave. It, it will cost you more money to replace them and train them up. And also, uh, then you might not really achieve those results. Now, having really happy and empowered team will ultimately, they'll be more motivated, they'll put more work in, they will be more creative in, in their tasks, and ultimately your company will, will thrive. Um, so, and also there is a lot of evidence that people who are motivated at what they do and happier about what they, what they do, they produce better results because the prefrontal cortex is working better as opposed to if they're reluctant to do it or if they think that they're doing it just because of other person. Um, so long-term, that works better. Now, there is exceptions. If there is a crisis, like literally, you know, if, if like, um, let's imagine there is TV shows about to go live and the present is missing and the situation needs to be resolved immediately. Now, dissonant leadership is needed to just kind of get things done and through in time. There is no time to, you know, to discuss how you're feeling about presenting if you're not prepared or we have nobody else. You have to present, go on, you know, <laughs> just do what you can. <laughs> so in crisis, dissonant leadership might be needed. Also, sometimes if the team um, is just starting and people are not yet qualified to make their own decisions, like if you have like 18 year olds who just finished school, starting working for you, but they, they really don't are not really trained up, so dissonant leadership could be useful at the beginning of the company, at the beginning of the people's career, to train them up. And once they are a little bit more up to scratch, then using resonant leadership to really help them mold into who they want to be. Uh, also, in some tasks, a dissonant le- leadership is needed to, to avoid making mistakes. Like if you're a programmer or uh, if you're doing tax return, in fact, being just focused on that task, individual task, is better uh, as you will be less likely uh, to make mistakes and and sometimes being distracted by people around you which just kind of make things uh, take longer. So there is time and place for dissonant leadership as well. Uh, So what is, there is neither of leadership styles is good or bad, both of them um, are needed at different times because if we are just, you know, team, let's imagine uh, there is a group, Of programmers trying to to debug the software and the leader is resonant and he comes and chats how are you feeling about doing those things you'd be annoying right so there it's just not the right time and place for it Um, so just learning about those styles uh, and assessing when which style would be more beneficial in your own life not only at work but actually in the relationships we have and practicing to apply them uh, w- would produce better results, and also just more fulfilling relationships and more fulfilling, hopefully ultimately life and you know uh, company working style. If someone's listening to this and they think,
1: "Oh, I've definitely just learned the word for what my bosses are i'm I'm working within a, a regime, I'm working within a business that has dissonant leadership. So that person is listening to this and they might be thinking my thoughts aren't being listened to, my feelings aren't being acknowledged, all of those things. Is there anything that one can do in reaction to dissonant
2: leadership to perhaps make the situation better? Yeah. So in the chapter on communication, I share how you can express your needs without triggering amygdala. Now, if you go to your boss and say you're being dissonant read this book and change, you're not very likely to have much success. But if you say, you know what, if you go to your boss and say, "Um, I noticed we haven't had one-on-one meetings for a while, and I would really like to have one-on-one meeting when we are discussing both, you know, what I'm working on and what things I achieved and what I need help with. Would you have time for it? And if the person says, no, it's no, you know, there is not much you can do about it. But you might open up a possibility when this person frees up space and time And they might be able to become more resonant in that space of time. Because the reality is we all become dissonant when we're dealing with too much. If we are going under, if we're experiencing really stressful situations and juggling so many things, uh, dissonant leadership is a natural side effect. But when we free up time and, 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 and space and stop for a moment, we might be able to become resonant at that time. And like one-on-one meetings, especially if people have good rapport, can actually trigger resonant leadership. Also in some companies, resonant leadership is sort of like um, a little bit outsourced from the, you know, maybe line managers to other team members. You know, we could be more resonant to each other and kind of get that from from our colleagues or sometimes internal coaches in companies or HR staff can provide that. So kind of just, just seeing what's possible but also expressing and asking for things in a amygdala-friendly way Um, you might just explore where where the limits are within within the current setting. And
1: you also talk about this very much in terms of uh, not just work relationships or professional relationships but friendships and romantic relationships and familial relationships and how there are different attachment styles and essentially there are dynamics within all of those relationships that maybe you can change for the better or you can maybe understand why you always go for the same boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah
2: yeah definitely I have separate chapters on that actually one is on on, on relationships in particular romantic relationships then the one on communication also uh, relates to that but Again, brain insights on the mammal brain and how that influences which people we're drawn to, and why sometimes you know somebody who who seems to tick all the boxes doesn't evoke any feelings in us and any attraction to. Um, so looking into sort of mammal brain wanting familiarity and wanting to play out almost past patterns in order to finish the development. So I share some, some, some both uh, theories behind it in the book, but also practical tools, you know, how to identify what's going on and how to, to really kind of gradually bit by bit uh, to move forward. If you're playing out the patterns which are not making you happy, you might need to do internal work first in order to make better cho- choices in the future. When it comes to romantic relationships, and I think a lot of people will probably uh,
1: relate to this, this idea of, being attracted to or always being drawn to the same sort of person who then, when things don't go wrong, you realize just that person is is just not good for you or that person's characteristics or what have you. It's not a good support system. How can you take a step back and really look at that objectively and then move forward and not make the same mistake? Because it isn't just as simple as
2: just saying, oh, I won't go for people who do X. No, yeah. So it's, we can't, ever be truly objective right we always have our subjective biases but we are in danger here to go like imagine you're you're going for one type of of people and you accumulate a lot of pain and suffering and then you go for completely opposite type like imagine you go you're in a relationship with somebody who's very career focused and they don't really have much time for you and you accumulate loneliness and hurt Related to that, then, then suddenly you go for somebody who is really clingy and just wants to spend all the time with you. That's not great either, right? So we, we might need to look at why we make those choices in the first place. What's inside of us that pushes us to act that way? And we, if we heal that and address that, then suddenly we would we won't be pulled to those people to such an extent. But internal work often is needed. And I talk about inner child healing, about the the theoretical transactional analysis and how we can actually provide that self-healing for ourselves using certain methods. Um, And if we do that, practice that regularly enough, we might just kind of sort of not really get, fixed is not the right word, but sort of reduce the inner hurt and inner trauma to the extent that we make healthier choices naturally, but we can't quite force ourselves to make better choices without the internal change, because ultimately we just won't really develop emotional feelings to that. Per- people who don't take enough familiarity and enough scores for your mammal brain, because ultimately love are, is created by your mammal brain. At least that kind of you know falling in love and having that overwhelming sense of pleasure when you're around person and feeling really really drawn to certain people that's your mammal brain talking and if you go for people only your rational brain chooses you wouldn't have that component it would feel kind of boring and dry so but once with created a little bit of healing your mammal brain would make healthier choices and you will feel and develop feelings for people who are healthier for you as a result
1: I uh, was having a conversation with a friend recently, as we're all doing over Zoom at the moment, talking about the fact that um, I look back on maybe my 20s and 30s and think, I didn't make, I didn't do things for fear of the mistake I might make. So it was very much about protecting myself. And actually, I feel like I hit my 40s and hadn't had a lot of the experiences that would have actually been helpful. The highs and lows of love and breakups and all those things, You know, I minimized all of that in order to be safe and not to get hurt. Mm. Um, And I I wondered if actually one of the things that you might suggest as a neuroscientist and a behavioral coach who's maybe experienced and seen a lot of this is actually these experiences aren't failures. They're, they're all really good.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're all learning in progress. And, and with relationships, we learn what does work and what doesn't work. And we can't just kind of be in no relationship and fix relationship trauma. Now, healing happens in other relationships, especially to do like with a relationship trauma. So with making better and better choices in, different, in, in each relationship or different choices, we heal different parts of who we are and then enable us to make better choices in the future. And I know we often want to make 100% correct choice straight away, but unfortunately it doesn't quite work that way.
1: No, (laughs) no, it doesn't. And I do like as well, the fact that you talk about, you talk about this in friendships as well and how to cultivate meaningful friendships. And I think what I really like about all of this, not just the fact that, and this is all this, that it's based in science, it's based in fact. I really enjoy the fact that we can put ourselves under so much pressure to change, or we can just have this kind of running in a, in a monologue where we're kind of bashing ourselves or just Mm. giving ourselves a hard time for not being a certain way or not doing a certain thing. And what I really appreciated about all of your insights actually was that every single one comes from a place of kindness don't bash mm-hmm. yourself, have, have a really nice conversation with yourself and not mm-hmm. in a woo-woo or airy-fairy way. Listeners, there are no crystals, there are no dim lights <laughs> <laughs> and there's no clinky-plonky music in the background. This is just really practical stuff. Stop bashing yourself, mm. stop telling yourself you're this, that or the other mm. and
2: be really kind to yourself. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm really pleased to hear that because I think ultimately understanding your brain and learning about your brain hopefully will give you compassion for yourself and self-forgiveness ultimately because we we often are too hard on ourselves. We often have these, oh, I wish I did this, then that. You couldn't have. You can now that you have the knowledge you couldn't have back then. So understanding why things happen and why we do make those things we call mistakes is, is kind of really ultimately, hopefully giving a sense of self-validation, self-forgiveness, self-compassion. And with all the information and all the kind of awareness of your past, hopefully you're in the place to make somewhat better choices and kind of treating life in each area as things in progress. Because your brain can only make the best decision from the knowledge and awareness you have at that given moment. And with, with more awareness, with more knowledge, you'll make better choices so it's all both in the career, in romantic relationships, in your lifestyle, in friendships, any area of life. It's all work in progress. And it's and okay. It's only by doing those things and trying and adjusting as when we make mistakes, uh, we, we can learn about ourselves and what things work and what things don't work. And as you say, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely
1: fine. I really enjoy the fact that the, the book ends with a sign-off from you where you wish people a well-functioning prefrontal cortex and a calm uh, a calm amygdala, which I just really like. <laughs> I do think there's something really helpful about being able to talk about emotions, thoughts, feelings, and also um, being able to kind of figure out where they come from in the brain, which allows you to almost like give them a hierarchy.
2: Mm, mm, hopefully. Yeah, I think, I think understanding, because emotions are not random, understanding why they happen and why we feel the way we do can give us a lot of understanding of what things do work and what things don't work for us. And via that understanding, we can adjust and we will feel less of those emotions if we make better choices. But if we just keep ignoring them and try to kind of suppress them and get rid of them and invalidate them, feel wrong for feeling them, unfortunately wouldn't 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 make a change.
1: I honestly could talk to you for hours about every single chapter of this book because there is so much in here. But listeners, what I will say is, it's one of the easiest reads I've read in quite some time, I could, I literally could not put this book down. It was Aww. such a, so easy to absorb all that information. And I never thought I'd be saying that, you know, a neuroscientist book would be something I found really easy to digest because I would feel it would be well above my uh, pay grade but it's really accessible and mm. um, obviously the link to the book will be in the show notes and the link to you to Gebir, will be in the show notes but um, thank you so much for coming on and just explaining and I highly recommend if you are listening to this and you you think about any area of your life that you would like to improve change or think could be adapted to serve you better your insights could be just really helpful
2: well, thank you so much i had a great time discussing them with you
1: thank you so much for listening i do hope you enjoyed that conversation with gabia and me if you would like to get in touch with me email me at thebeautypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. you know i love hearing from you don't be shy um or you can always dm me on instagram and twitter where i am at emma guns but if you want to chat to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast then i encourage you please to join the facebook forum the link to join is in the show notes which can be found wherever you are streaming and downloading this episode and there's so many wonderful conversations in there happening right now and i would love to see you so please do click that link join and come and join the chat thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one